It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Two moms looking for inspiration wherever wherever we we can find find it. it. Hello, and welcome to episode 115 of the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. As promised last week, I'm going to finish my deep dive into Coretta Scott King, the wife of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I knew so little of this woman. Actually, I didn't know anything about this woman. And now I still feel like I'm just scratching the surface of this amazing civil rights icon. I'll be talking about some heroes who saved lives during the recent cold snap that hit the United States at the end of December. And Myrtilla Minor, another pioneer in the civil rights movement, even before the Civil War. This is going to be a great episode, and I'm so excited you're joining me this week. So Portland has a pretty bad homeless problem. Every year I see tents alongside the highway, and in the winter my heart goes out to all of those people out there just trying to stay warm. I know it has to be a lot of work. And honestly, Oregon has a pretty mild climate. Portland only gets a little snow yearly, although temperatures can drop below freezing fairly often during the winter. My heart always goes out to the unhoused, but especially during the winter. And while Portland does provide places for unhoused people to warm up, not everyone can make it to the warming shelters. During the severe cold snap in December that affected many places around the world, my heart was warmed, pun intended, by stories about people who took others in during what amounted to blizzard conditions. In Suffolk County in the UK, there's a council farm that has been dedicated to helping the surrounding community. First, they teach people who are looking for work farm skills, everything from managing crops to making repairs to animal husbandry. These people can take these skills and then find employment on farms around the UK. They also converted a large grain storage barn into a warming shelter. The barn had previously been in pretty bad shape, but they replaced the roof, added thermal windows and new doors, as well as a wood stove, and found the place stayed warm. The large area now has places for people to sit, a small kitchen, and a guitar and piano for people to play. People can come and get warm, as well as socialize. Part of the country is rural and fairly poor, so people can come and enjoy the warmth, keeping them from having to incur the expense of heating their own homes for part of the day. The farm has become a community center and a much-needed resource for the area. During the blizzard that hit Buffalo, New York, which hit between December 22nd and December 27th of 2022, more than four feet of snow fell during that period. The whole city was shut down and people were trapped, some in their homes, some at work, and some in their cars. Obviously, the unhoused were greatly affected by this as well. Several businesses opened up their doors to help those impacted by the blizzard. Craig Eltson owns a barbershop in Buffalo called CNC Cuts. C-U-T-Z. Elson was working his barbershop when the blizzard hit. The amount of snow took everyone by surprise, and it accumulated quickly, making travel unsafe. Elston had already decided that he was going to have to spend the night at his barbershop, along with a couple of clients, when someone knocked at the door. The man was looking for shelter from the storm, and Elston invited him in. Elston started hearing on the news that many people were without power and heat, and that people were already starting to die from the storm. He got on TikTok and Facebook and invited people in in his community to shelter at his barbershop through the storm. 
Elston said, I see dead people on Facebook. My first instinct is I got a building with heat and lights, like a lot of people don't. Why not open my building up to the public? I genuinely just did it so people would have somewhere to go. Between Friday and Monday, Elston estimated 50 or so people came through his barbershop, while about 30 people stayed the weekend from Friday to Monday. Others just came in to get warm, use the Wi-Fi to contact family, or charge their cell phones. Elston stayed the entire time, even missing Christmas with his nine-year-old daughter, to make sure that these people were cared for. Elston helped feed people by trekking to a local corner store that was a mile away. People been reaching out calling me a hero. Elston told Insider Magazine, and the most I tell them is that I'm no hero. I'm just a person that got a heart. Another story coming out of that same blizzard in Buffalo happened in McDonald's. Workers at a McDonald's discovered too late that it was going to be unsafe to drive home, so they decided they would shelter in place at the McDonald's. They had a warm, safe place with lots of food to stay in. They figured they would offer up shelter to others stuck on the streets around the McDonald's to come in, too. Kristen Kosha, one of McDonald's managers, said, We accepted the fact that we weren't going home, so we might as well open up. We figured someone might need help. Police and fire units began dropping off stranded motorists at the McDonald's. Around 50 people sheltered over the weekend. The employees kept the coffee going, provided food and hot chocolate, and on Saturday, they had the Buffalo Bills game on. Kosha said, You don't really think about it at the time. It's just common sense. You do what you have to do. You have a warm building and no one's in it. Why would you not open it up? And it wasn't only people affected by the cold. Animals are hit by the weather as well. In the Houston area of Texas, they were hit with a cold snap plunging temperatures below freezing. Bats were impacted by the drop in temperature, causing them to go into a hypothermic shock. This caused the bats, who roosted under two bridges in Houston, to lose their grip and dropped to the ground. Some of the bats died from the cold or the fall, but Mary Warwick, the wildlife director of the Houston Humane Society, was determined to save as many as she could. This so reminds me of something my mother-in-law would do. Mary went to the bridges and collected around 1,500 bats. Many appeared dead, but as they warmed up in her car, in her car, on the way home, she could hear them start moving and chirping. This sounds like a horror movie to me. She took several trips to the bridges to collect the bats and return them home to recuperate in incubators. She kept them warm and in the dark by storing them in her attic, keeping the different colonies separate until she could release them when the weather warmed. She also made sure that the bats had adequate fluids, as many were dehydrated. She's now fundraising for facility upgrades that would include a bat room and is training more people on how to safely handle bats. I'm so grateful that she would be willing to do that because I can't say that I would. What I love most about these stories is just the open hearts of these people doing what they can when others are in need. Craig Elston may not think he's a hero, but all these people are heroes in my book. I love that Coretta Scott grew up in an age that primarily focused on manners and proper etiquette for young ladies versus encouraging careers, and yet Coretta didn't just accept society norms. She blazed her own trail. She was a voice for the oppressed, and not just oppressed blacks, but so many without a voice, including the poor, the LGBTQ community, and children. With all of her accomplishments, most of us, including me, have thought of Coretta Scott King as the wife of Martin Luther King Jr., and as she told Martin, just solely being a wife and a mother would have driven her crazy. She was just as much a part of the civil rights movement as Martin Luther King Jr., just in a different way. 
Martin could be the voice and the face of the civil rights movement because he had a strong, independent woman supporting him. Without Coretta, the civil rights movement would have looked much different. I talked last week about Coretta's early years, how she went out on her first date with Martin to have him tell her that she had all the qualities he was looking for in a wife. I'm a little surprised she didn't take off running, but I'm grateful she gave him a chance because they became quite the social justice power couple. She mostly was behind the scenes while Martin traveled, promoting their cause, but there were also times she was right by his side. Coretta made several trips as the wife of Martin Luther King Jr., including a trip to Ghana, West Africa, in 1957, a newly independent country they were there to support, also traveling to Nigeria, France, Italy, and the Vatican in 1957. In 1958, they finally got a real honeymoon. As I noted before, their actual honeymoon was spent in a funeral parlor, as no hotels rented rooms to blacks. They went to Mexico for their next honeymoon, where they witnessed the huge disparity between the extremes of both sides, the wealthy and the poor. They spent almost a month in India in 1959, when Martin made a pilgrimage to sites associated with his role model, Mahatma Gandhi. Coretta was impressed with the advancements India had at the time, including women in prominent government roles. Sadly, back in her country, women were still second-class citizens, and black women weren't even that fortunate. In 1962, Martin fully supported Coretta's trip to Geneva, Switzerland for the Disarmament Conference. She represented the United States and served as a Women's Strike for Peace delegate at the conference, which included delegates from 17 nations. Later, she was thrilled to be at Martin's side when they traveled to Oslo, Norway to accept his Nobel Peace Prize, more so to be his co-worker behind the award. She was moved to see what a profound impact they were making on the world. We all know that their time together as a team was sadly short-lived. April 4, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr., the man who preached nonviolence, was assassinated. It would be absolutely understandable if Coretta decided to disappear and take some time for herself and her children, but their fight was too important for her. Instead, she picked up where Martin had left off in ways. Just days after his death, she took Martin's place leading a march for sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. Later that same month, she stood in for her husband at an anti-Vietnam War rally in New York, Not only did Martin and Coretta disagree with the violence of the war, but young black men were being killed fighting for a country that didn't give them equal rights. It hardly seemed fair or right. It wasn't the first time she vocalized her disapproval of the war. It was her first such display without Martin. I found it so interesting that all of the letters Coretta received, and we're talking from the president and very prominent people after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Out of all of those letters, her most treasured condolence letter actually came from Lee Harvey Oswald's mother. I did a quick search trying to find why that would be the case, but I wasn't able to find why that was her favorite letter. So if anyone knows, I would love for you to write in or send me a note. Before his death, Martin had been working on a new campaign, and Coretta launched it in 1968. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. called for a revolution of values. He wanted better care for the poor and came up with a concept in an effort to gain economic justice for poor people across the United States. I talked about Bono from U2 a few weeks ago. And the heart of both Bono and Martin Luther King Jr. are, in my thinking, so very Christ-like. Taking care of the poor and hungry should be a priority, and that was a goal of the Poor People's Campaign. 
Coretta made sure it was launched and participated in numerous anti-poverty efforts after. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't a wealthy man. He didn't believe in material things. It actually took Coretta quite a while to convince him to buy a home. I think as a preacher, he just didn't see the importance of material things. His insurance policy was actually taken out by Harry Belafonte. The only thing Martin Luther King Jr. actually had to his name was his intellectual property. So when they realized that companies were taking his speech and charging for its purchase, they were forced to begin suing for copyright infringements. Apparently, a company was trying to capitalize on its image with a bobblehead of sorts, and they fought to have that halted as well. It wasn't out of greed so much as they wanted to protect Martin's work, the people he was fighting for, and really his children. That's just a little side note because I think it's brought up a lot as a way to smear the King family. Soon after Martin's death, Coretta began working to preserve his legacy for future generations. On June 26, 1968, she founded the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Center on the property next to Ebenezer Baptist Church, where Martin had co-pastored with his father. In 1978, they changed the name to Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change, Incorporated, commonly referred to as the King Center. Probably a good thing, since that's a mouthful. At the center, they provide programs and trainings with the Martin Luther King Jr. methodology of nonviolence. It was one of the first institutions after the assassination of Dr. King to host a nonviolence conference and annual summer institutes on nonviolence. It was a way to continue to advance his work and a sort of official living memorial. While the center was her pride and joy, it also gave Coretta her share of headaches. I mean, with the enormity of it all, how could it not? Coretta continued public speaking and had nationally syndicated columns throughout the 70s and 80s. She wanted to have a national holiday established for Martin Luther King Jr. and never gave up on that dream. She led a group of more than half a million demonstrators to Washington, D.C. to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the famous 1963 I Have a Dream speech. Coretta worked to finalize the plans for the national holiday to honor her late husband. It officially began January 1986. Preserving Martin's legacy, opening the King Center, and getting a national holiday weren't her only achievements. Coretta worked tirelessly to share the message of nonviolence around the globe. She led goodwill trips to so many countries, including Africa, Latin America, Europe, and Asia. She voiced her pro-democracy worldwide. Coretta also met with many spiritual leaders, including Pope John Paul, the Dalai Lama, Bishop Desmond Tutu, and Dorothy Day. I had to look up Dorothy Day since I wasn't familiar with that name, and according to Wikipedia, Day is most likely the best-known political radical among American Catholics. Day grew up in a bohemian culture and became a Catholic while still holding on to her social ideals. Day was an American journalist, social activist, and an anarchist. I found it so interesting that two of the people Coretta admired the most were Eleanor Roosevelt, who Amy talked about in episode 15, and Mary McLeod Bethune. That means I'm going to have to do a deep dive into learning about Bethune, a civil rights activist, American educator, philanthropist, and humanitarian. Coretta witnessed the signing of the Middle East Peace Accords with a historic handshake between Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Chairman Yasser Arafat. 
Greta participated in a series of sit-in protests in Washington that prompted national demonstrations against South African racial policies. She had a long-standing opposition to South African apartheid and was arrested for demonstrating in front of the South African Embassy in Washington, D.C., along with her daughter Bernice and son Martin III. In 1986, she traveled to South Africa to meet with Winnie Mandela, another woman I need to learn about. Winnie actually stayed with Nelson Mandela all during his imprisonment, though they were divorced after in 1996. When apartheid fell, Greta helped organize training for new voters in South Africa with funding from the U.S. State Department. The King Center trained 300,000 new South African voters on the principles of nonviolence as they prepared for the country's first multiracial election. Coretta stood with Nelson Mandela in Johannesburg when he became South Africa's first democratically elected president. Just one more historic event she was part of. She was also active in a variety of women's organizations, the National Organization for Women, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and United Church Women. Coretta had the foresight to make sure Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches and notes were preserved. It's because of Coretta that we have so much of Martin's work and audio of his speeches today. She somehow knew change was coming and made sure to tape Martin's speeches preserving his legacy. This woman worked endlessly, and that I didn't know anything about her is embarrassing. She was so much more than the wife of Martin Luther King Jr. She was his partner in their fight for civil rights. Coretta also was the mother of his children and responsible for the vast majority of their upbringing, both before and after his death. Reading how this woman loved and accepted each of her children for exactly who they were made me admire her even more. She was proud of Yolanda, Yoki, for pursuing her dreams in the arts. As parents, we always want better for our children, and that was the case with Coretta and Yoki. Where Coretta had put her dreams on hold, Yoki would be able to reach for hers. Coretta was proud of Martin III for his work in the community. Martin became the first of his father's immediate family to become officially involved in politics, serving as the Fulton County Commissioner. After his service, he carried on the family business of advocacy. Coretta also is proud of her son Dexter for serving as a chairman for the Knight Center. He was a police officer for a time while living with Coretta, and I just giggled that she was so opposed to guns in her house that she wouldn't allow Dexter to bring it inside. He had to keep his gun locked up in the car. I'm not sure that's any safer, but still, the woman stood by her convictions, and I admire that. Dexter also continued to advocate for civil rights. Bernice, they called her Bunny, was the only child to follow in her father's footsteps and join the ministry. Bunny was only five when her father was assassinated. Then her uncle, Martin's brother, A.D., short for Alfred Daniel, drowned under mysterious circumstances. Five years later, she lost her grandmother, Alberta King, when she was shot during a church service at Ebenezer Baptist. Bernice, like her father, suffered from depression and was suicidal at one point. The tragedies in her life shaped her ministry. I so admired that she turned those awful pains into something good. I think it's cute, too, that they obviously named Martin after Martin Luther King Jr. and his father. Bernice was actually named after Coretta's mother, I'm assuming, since that was her name. And Dexter was named after the first church that Martin had preached at. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy lives on, and we have Coretta Scott King to thank for a huge part of that. I can't believe she got past that first date with Martin, where he said that she had everything he wanted in a wife. Talk about a little premature. 
Greta put her own dreams aside for the betterment of the world. At the same time, she didn't give up on her dreams, but found a way to use them for the cause she was so passionate about. Coretta didn't waver in her belief for peace. From her early years speaking out about the Vietnam War to later voicing her opposition to the death penalty, she didn't waver. Talk about strength. I admire the love she had for her children, loving them unconditionally and basically raising them as a single parent. Once again, strength. I think of those early years of her life, dropping out of school at 10 to pick cotton and doing miscellaneous jobs to help her family actually prepared her for the challenges ahead. I'm inspired by this woman in so many ways, but I think if I had to pick one word, I'd say I admire her most for her strength. Racing to pick as much cotton as she could in those hot fields, doing whatever she needed to do to get the education she wanted, her partnership with Martin in both civil rights movement and having his family, and then her strength after his death. I don't know how this woman had the time to do everything she did. Coretta was a partner to Martin, doing everything behind the scenes to make it happen. I mean, her basement at their house was basically the civil rights movement's headquarters, phone calls, meetings, and paperwork. It had to have been stressful for a young mother. She kept the home and the kids together while he traveled and spread the need for equality. Then she didn't let his voice die on April 4th, 1968. She not only shared his sermons, letters, and archived important speeches, but she personally took his place for the cause with marches, speeches, and boycotts. Her unwavering determination astounds me. If each of us lived just a piece of that, I can't imagine what a change it would make in the world. When you have decided what you believe, what you feel must be done, have the courage to stand alone and be counted. Eleanor Roosevelt. I have learned so much reading about Credit Scott King. One of the things that just floored me was how differently black students and white students were treated. White students got buses to school. Black students walked. School was funded by taxes for white students, but black students had to pay. School for white students went months longer than school for black students. Clearly, there was no interest in educating black students in the South, and probably there was a direct intent to ensure that black students were not well-educated. While things have gotten better in the United States, opportunities for education still seem to be less available to black Americans. It was even worse during the time of slavery in the United States. Very few options for education were available for blacks, even in the North. Myrtilla Minor worked to change that. Myrtilla was born in 1815 in North Brookfield, Massachusetts. Her family grew hops and was very poor, especially since they had 12 children. Myrtilla was very sick during most of her childhood and read books and studied to pass the time. She eventually graduated from the Young Ladies Domestic Seminary, I love that, with a degree in teaching. She spent a few years teaching in Rhode Island before she was offered a position in Whitesville, Mississippi. Whitesville, Mississippi was the first time Myrtilla had visited the South and had seen slavery firsthand. She was horrified. She began teaching white children in Whitesville, but saw the impact of slavery on the black population, particularly the young black girls. Myrtilla asked for permission to teach young black girls, but was denied by the Whitesville School Board. She wrote home to her family about the unjust, unnatural, and barbarous system of slavery. It broke her heart that her white students were being raised with the idea that slavery was not only normal, but good for society. It shocked her that otherwise good and godly people could somehow be fine with the inhumane treatment of slaves. 
Her time in Whitesville was cut short when she became severely sick and had to return home to Brookfield. At a time when Myrtilla thought she was going to die, she made a pledge to herself. If God allows me to live, I will devote my entire life to teaching slaves. According to a memoir written by Ellen O'Connor in 1885, during her recovery, she began to talk to abolitionist Garrett Smith and Frederick Douglass, who stressed the importance of education for blacks, particularly freed slaves. Once she recovered, Myrtilla moved to the Washington, D.C. area in 1851 and rented a room, started teaching six young black women. This was the start of the normal school for colored girls. That name sounds so awful now, but then it was a scandal for being so progressive. She picked Washington, D.C. because it was the furthest south she could go and still open the school. About a month later, her class had more than doubled, reaching 15 students, and within 60 days of opening, she had 40 students. As you can imagine, there was both support and hostility for the school in Washington, D.C. Due to vandalism and arson concerns, Martilla often slept in the school with a revolver under her pillow. Quakers opposed slavery and helped financially support the school. The school was forced to move three times in its first two years. In 1853, Myrtilla Minor's school had become well-known among groups that were working towards ending slavery. Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, an anti-slavery novel, donated $1,000 to the school, which at the time was a lot of money. Myrtilla used those funds to purchase a permanent space for the school and called it the Institution for Colored Youth. The property was a three-acre lot on the edge of Washington, D.C., and had a house and barn to hold classes. The school promoted primary school teaching, classes on domestic skills, and emphasized preparing black women to become teachers. Myrtilla Minor was involved in teaching at the school, but had to take a step back due to her poor health. In 1957, Emily Howard took over leadership of the school, although Myrtilla continued to be involved. In 1861, concerned with her health, Myrtilla decided to travel to California to try and regain her health. She returned to Washington, D.C. in 1864, only to die following a carriage accident. The school closed from 1860 to 1871, largely because of the American Civil War and the racial tension of the time. When the school reopened, it was under the care of a board of trustees, which included Henry Ward Beecher, a famous abolitionist, and John Hopkins, a philanthropist who helped newly freed slaves following the Civil War. John Hopkins University and Hospital are still around and known for being one of the best medical schools in the world. The school merged with some other schools and became Minor Teachers College, and after a few more mergers, part of the University of the District of Columbia. There's still a building on the University of the District of Columbia named after Minor. There's also an elementary school named after Martella Minor in the District of Columbia. It's so hard to comprehend how gutsy Martella Minor was in her time. First, she was a woman opening a school. That was difficult enough in the 1850s America. Remember, women didn't even get the right to vote until 1920. She also opened a school for young black women at a time when slavery still existed only miles from the school. Right across the river from Washington, D.C. was Virginia, a slave state. I don't blame her for sleeping with a revolver under a pillow. She was risking her own life just to make sure these girls had a future. I seriously admire the moxie this woman had, and I think everyone should know about her. Without faith, nothing is possible. With it, 
Nothing is impossible. Mary McLeod Bethune. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.